0: So 2020 might look a lot like 2019, according to our next guest. David LeDuc is here, Chief Investment Officer of Active Fixed Income at Mellon, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this. It's kind of a Fed Tuesday (laughs) because we're awaiting some comments uh, from Jay Powell from uh, the NAV annual meeting. Um, David, nice to have you here. What do you think we need to hear from Jay Powell right now?
2: Well, I think the the question Jay Paul is probably asking himself is, you know, how am I going to thread the needle on my comments today and, um, you know, not really telegraph too much? I think a year ago we were talking. Um, at, at this same at this same it, luncheon was in a year ago. Year. it was in boston last year and it was at this same luncheon where he talked about how great the economy was going and really set expectations for a lot of rate hikes um, and that's partly what led to a lot of volatility we had at the end of the year so my sense is if if that memory is still in his head he's probably weighing his words carefully my sense is that you know If you look at the recent comments, I don't think that they'll be particularly different, which is he's pointed out the fact that the economy in the U.S. is in a good place, I think in quotes. Right. Um, And he's also pointed out the fact that the uncertainty around trade remains one of the the, the risks that, that that are weighing on on their policy decisions. So,
0: but what can the Fed do about that? And that goes yeah, back to the story that you know I pointed yep. out at the beginning of our show that you know we might be headed if we are headed for a recession, it might be different this time around, yep. and one that necessarily, not necessarily, that the Fed's tools can deal with, especially yeah, if I, it's around you know, trade policy and yep. geopolitical tensions. I
2: agree. I think. Um, You know, there's a lot of expectations that lower rates, easier monetary policy in and of themselves can offset a lot of this this uncertainty about the future. And I'm not really sure that that's true. Um, I don't think that we have a cost of capital problem, right? Rates are really, really, really low. So providing, you know, easier credit and a lot lower interest rates, I'm not sure if that's going to do enough to offset concerns about, um, you know, the future for demand, right? Which is what trade is upset at, at
1: the moment. You know, it was interesting. And, and Carol and I were both in this New York bureau meeting earlier and we were talking about sort of the big stories mm-hmm. that we've been following. And, and one of them that I have to say that's really caught so many people's attention is this whole negative yield story. It's a global story. Yep. It's been driven by a lot of our mm-hmm. coverage here uh, in New York. Tell us how that plays through to your investment thesis, what you make of it and, and what sort of everyday investors should make of it.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and we get this question a lot right now. I think investors have seen that yields around the world, right? There's a lot of stories. There's $17 trillion now of negative yielding debt around the world. So um, we've got a lot of questions from clients uh, about can that happen in the U.S., and what am I going to do? And I think the implications are pretty um, pretty tough for, for investors, right? The, it's already a low-yield environment, and you've seen investors increasingly stretch into less liquid, uh, more riskier assets like high-yield and loans and other markets to try to find some kind of yield. Um, we don't think that we're headed to negative yields here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of differences um, def- demographically between markets like Japan and Europe, where they have um, older populations. The productivity is a little bit better here. Um, inflation's closer to target in the U.S. So um, we don't really see that in the future. But but in general, I think we've had you know a negative term premium in rate markets, and so rates are a lot lower than they probably should be, given where the economy has been. Um, and that's presented a problem for investors, and unfortunately, I think the implication of the negative yields around the world means is it probably caps yields here, right? right. because investors all around the world are looking for places where yields are higher, um, and the U.S. is a pretty broad market. So
0: 154 on yeah. the 10-year in the U.S., I'm going to take that, right, considering what the global backdrop is?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, now if you're a global investor um, in the U.S., you can buy some of these markets and hedge those yields back into the U.S. And I won't get into the math of that, but you can actually earn a little bit higher yield. But in general in the world, right, if you're a global investor, and particularly if you – you know, those investors that need high-quality assets, banks, financial institutions um, – You know, your choices are very limited to find anything with a positive yield right now in global markets. And so I think that that environment globally will continue to keep U.S. yields. It's one of the factors that will keep U.S. yields lower than Mm -hmm. they probably should be. Um, And it probably means that for investors they have to adjust their return expectations.
1: And talk to me about trade, because clearly that is playing through the market sentiment. And, you know, increasingly we were talking with one of our colleagues, Brad Davis, earlier from our breaking news desk about how, you know, you're starting to see it play through railroad stocks you know you're starting to see it sort of pop up uh in maybe not unexpected but meaningful ways it even feels like it's somehow at least indirectly entering into the world of sports with all this basketball controversy which i'm sure being from boston you follow the nba pretty closely (laughs) um
2: but, what does it look like from an investor's perspective trade yeah what it you know for for us what it looks like is I think it looks very similar to what it looks like for Powell, which is this this hard to quantify unknown right it carries huge risks around it, but it 's hard to put a number on it, and which is um, it makes both you know being a central banker hard and it makes being an investor hard because you don't really know what the potential impact is if you look at the the actual impact of the tariffs that that are likely to go into place in October, um, you know, a couple of tenths of GDP, those in and of themselves aren't enough, I think, to derail our expectations for growth in 2020, which is maybe a little bit less than two percent. More, what the issue is, is the companies that we talk to, all of them, you know, being more hesitant on their right. hiring plans. It's the sentiment that really is the thing that I think has the the ability to. Um, that uncertainty is more what's going to impact the economy than the actual the statistics but, or the dollars. But we do a lot of
0: reporting about specific companies, whether it's in the ag sector yep. or, or FedEx, talking about specifically that yeah, trade certain is sectors the for sure. Yep. We have to leave it there, or actually, we don't have to leave it there.
1: Well, let's keep going. What I do want okay. to ask
0: you is, we keep talking about everybody expects some kind of deal to be done between the U.S. and China. Yep. What if we don't get a deal? What if we are at this turning point? And things are going to be very different going forward. And China is not manufacturing everything like we used to, so we're not tapping into that cheap labor. And they're also not necessarily going to be buying as much from the United States. If that changes longer term, what do we as investors need to understand about that?
2: I think the main implication from that is um, the trajectory of global growth is lower than it might be, right? Potential, long-term potential growth is lower into that scenario than it might be, right? I think globalization, um, by any economist measure, has been good for global growth, right? Um, you know, I think Con- Economics 101, the and some more comparative others, advantages, right? Yeah. right? yeah, some better than others, and it's not that there haven't been abuses, and it's not, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of sympathy for some of the issues on this trade um, dispute with China. Among all our partners, right, Europe, UK, uh Japan they all have similar concerns around you know technology and and some of uh, some of those issues um but in general global a uh, uh, a more open global environment has been has added to global growth um and so i think if you roll back globalization um you know, if the un- world becomes more unilateral in that way i i think it it you have to knock down your long term global growth expectations well and it's interesting i think you are among those who expect some good growth from india
1: we were talking about this Mm -hmm. earlier we've been talking about Mm -hmm. now for a couple weeks in part because we were able to sit down with one of the you know leading business folks over in india anand mahindra and he was essentially saying india stands to benefit tremendously from a lot of this back
2: and forth between the us and china yeah no definitely and i think um particularly within the asia region right I, i think um if if that region ends up being you know more isolated right if this if 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 all these trade issues result in in, in um, you know they're talking about different standards different standards on on wireless right all these different things are going to have um, the 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 effect of making Asia a little bit more insulated and right. that's a big opportunity for India. What's yeah.
0: your favorite fixed income play right now?
2: Our favorite fixed income play is um, going up into quality, high-quality assets. So we're, um, we've been going up in quality and high-quality uh, corporate bonds, uh, particularly financials and uh, um, uh, utilities, so non-cyclical right. sectors. Um, and we still like uh, securitized assets like mortgages and other markets, um, things that are higher quality, things where you get paid for risks that aren't tied um, to the potential for a global slowdown.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Dave LaDuke is Chief Investment Officer of Active Fixed Income at Mellon. He's based up in Boston, down here on the lower part of the Acela Corridor in New (laughs) York City today. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser
3: and Jason Kelly on
1: Bloomberg Radio. This is normally about the time that we start talking about Business Week economics. We've been talking a lot about Business Week uh, economics. So let's get some reaction to what we heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell, from Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg, and Carl Riccadonna. Chief US economist for Bloomberg Economics. They're both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Kathleen, I wanna start with you. You were sitting here with us for most of that Q&A especially what jumped out at you what did you scribble down there uh, well you know
4: I thought it was a fun speech I love the fact that when he was a young guy starting out as an, an assistant treasury secretary job he was so lucky that Paul Volcker took him under his arm I love the fact that he spends all weekend reading all this stuff that stuff is color interesting not much impact on the bond market there I was will say on, on
1: Volcker for just one second sure. a nice shout out to Paul Volcker's book which, yes, is, said, out, which is a great read, read it, uh, and written uh, in conjunction with our colleague Christine Harper Absolutely. just to brag on Thank her a little gosh, bit
4: gosh because he'd never done that without Christine maybe he'd never gotten around to it but so he was carrying fantastic. it around
0: with him so I do wonder about like the symbolism right in oh, having that yeah. book there Right? Well, it's he's a, Volcker was for... a
4: very strong person, a very strong leader at a time when we really needed it. it, it I think, but in terms of clarifying things on where the Fed is, the, I think the whole thing was designed not to like really push, push, push. What are you going to do next? So I would just refer everybody back not to the Q and A but to the speech because I think what's important is at the very end, what does it mean being data dependent? He talks about all the reasons why the economy is looking okay. But he says there are risks to this outlook, principally from global developments, growth around much of the world has weakened over the past year and a half, uncertainties around trade, Brexit, et cetera. Rich Miller from our eco team in Washington wrote a story about the next recession is different because the the U.S. may not be pushed there by domestic factors. We talked about this at it, the top right? of our broadcast. Okay. More yeah. about these these global forces, I think it's so interesting that it dovetails here with what Jay Powell said, Fed's not on a preset course, so I think anybody who thinks October is a slam dunk, I don't know. It may be, but I think it's it's it, they're going to decide when they get there, but think one more thing, Chicago Fed President Charlie Evans wouldn't mind another 25 basis point rate cut. They're open, but I think it's a live meeting, but i think it's not 100% that they're going to move.
0: Well, Carl, and the point of Rich Miller's story is that if this recession is different this time around, it's not the usual forces you know, pushing us into recession, that limits the Fed in terms of what they can do. And I think that's the, the point that we've got to think about, right? The Fed has a certain set of tools. We know what their mandate is. They're watching inflation. They're watching the uh, employment picture. But you do wonder if it's geopolitical, if it's trade tensions. There's just so much the Fed can do, especially if you start to have CEOs just concerned about the outlook and you know, what it all means, holding back. There's not necessarily anything more the Fed can do to kind of make CEOs feel more confident.
5: Sure. Well, we've had uh, recessions uh, in the past that certainly have been caused by a lack of uh, confidence and animal spirits in the uh, corporate sector. So that's not unusual. Uh, What's unusual is that uh, this could potentially be driven by uh, some kind of uh, collapse or uh, sharp pullback in uh, trade. Uh, And it's yet to be determined if that really is uh, a possible way that we can uh, move into recession because consumer spending is such a lion's share of the economy that uh, a weak trade landscape It can push Germany into recession. They're probably already there. It can push most of Europe into recession. They're on the brink. Japan, same story. China, same story. In the U.S., if we turn down the trade dial, if we turn down the business investment dial, we still have a consumer landscape that is enough for the economy to limp through without uh, falling towards its stall speed. And so I I, I just – I'm not convinced that without a material pullback – In job creation and income creation, uh, that we can actually see recession come about. And you don't expect that. And we don't expect that. We'd have to see a real pullback in hiring. I'm talking to something on the vicinity of, you know, fifty to seventy-five thousand per month uh, per, uh, for, per month uh, on non-farm payrolls, and uh, we're uh, well above that threshold uh, for the time being. And just to reflect back on uh, Powell's uh, remarks here, uh, he's making it abundantly clear uh, that the asset purchases are coming uh, very soon, imminently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would expect that uh, my team expects that to happen at the uh, October 30th. FOMC meeting uh, and to be implemented very shortly thereafter. And that's critical because at year end you tend to have funding pressures uh, uh, uh exacerbated. uh, And also, uh, liquidity tends to dry up because a lot of people shut their books for the year. So the timing makes sense. So the timing has to happen uh, at some point in Q4, or I'll say run the risk that uh, all of these uh, temporary emergency measures will have to be dramatically uh, ramped up uh, as we go into year end. So this is a signal that the Fed is taking the measures to alleviate all those uh, issues in the uh, repo markets and whatnot. And so,
1: you know, we saw, you heard Charlie give the the market reaction. It's sometimes hard to distill down, you know, what's influencing what on the markets. We saw the market, you know, the S&P go up uh, to its highs of the days and then uh pull back. There were some uh China-related headlines moving that as well. Did the market hear what it needed to, do you think, Kathleen from Capital? Well,
4: no, if the market thought it needed to hear real confirmation that there's definitely a cut in what two and a half weeks, whenever yeah. that is at the end of the month. Didn't hear And it. that the door is gonna be open to another one in December, they definitely did not hear that. Better watch the economy, data dependent. And if Carl's right, if things aren't gonna get a lot worse, I I and I know that my dear Bloomberg economics team is looking for two more rate cuts this year. I just wonder if they're all going to be on board for it. Uh, And in terms of China, that was not asked about in the Q&A. It was not. he, He alluded to the fact that what the Fed's really watching now is how all these global forces are coming together. And, you know, you guys, it's very interesting. I was having a conversation with someone earlier saying, well, you know, someone I was saying who was arguing for rate cuts. It wasn't you guys, but someone else who is, right? Well, what does that person, what do they think it's going to do? Weaken the dollar? And I said, well, I don't think it's that so much. I think it's more like if you think things are weakening, you you take out the insurance, right? But, Carl, I think that's what a lot of the naysayers are looking. Go ahead and cut rates, man. Cut them twice. What's it going to do? How do you answer that? It's going to
5: lower your mortgage rate. It's going to lower the cost of financing for any number of corporate projects. And it uh, will also weaken the dollar and make U.S. exports more competitive. So rate cuts still work even in a low-rate environment. And and what was underscored, what was not explicitly written in this speech, what was very much uh, the underlying theme of this speech is uh, there's plenty of time before the next meeting and we are watching to see what happens with trade negotiations. Yeah, and you're exactly And the tea right. leaves have not looked good in that uh, regard over the last uh, couple of days, whether it's the MBA or uh, blacklisting uh, companies, etc., cetera, et cetera. It doesn't look like we're moving towards detente.
0: Well, and it's interesting for him to say you know, the U.S. economy faces risks, but overall is in a good place. I feel like we got a lot of that, that things look okay, but, right. you know, and again, and again, it really just right. harkens back to in the And dependence. that
5: is code language, right? He's yeah. saying don't look at the unemployment rate to say we don't need rate cuts. He's talking about those risks. And as those risks, as the clouds darken, Uh, then the Fed takes insurance out against those risks. So anytime you hear them saying the risks are getting worse, that means they're taking more insurance out against that, which I think means they're going to have to uh, continue uh, trimming rates. And if we look at the initial market reaction, look at the two-year yield, uh, you definitely saw that come down on the remarks. So I think there was a little bit of a dovish tone that did get through to the markets.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg. (laughs) She is... All right. So Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here as is Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg. And Austin's wearing a sweater, which apparently is necessary for his job because (laughs) consistently he is being sent to some very cold places to do some great reporting Uh, he's here with us about a story the CEOs promised to wire the Arctic concealed a billion dollar scam it's a fantastic read Uh, so
6: Austin what was going on and have you warmed up I'm, this is actually my Arctic Explorer sweater. So I'm <laughs> glad that you made note of that. Um, yeah, th- this story charts uh, this company called Quintillion's Quest to create a massive fiber optic network in Alaska, right around the, the tip of the coast in the Arctic, uh, frigid, uh, frozen most of the year round. Uh, and in the lower 48, um, we, we take the Internet for granted. Right. We can watch Netflix. We can you know stream YouTube anytime we want. But up there in these really small, uh, mostly native communities... You can't get access to the internet. You have dial-up speeds. It can cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars just to get on the internet. And so this company sought out to build out this massive network that would not only connect Alaska, it would actually speed up the web for much of the planet by creating this Arctic uh, web pipeline that would connect London to Asia. Uh, m- most of the Arctic pipeline, the, the pipelines for the internet today go through either the Atlantic or the Pacific, very similar routes. So this would have been a disruptive route that would have been a shorter uh, distance from, from London to Asia.
5: The promise of the Northwest
6: Passage. Exactly. Maybe
5: you've heard this tale before. I
6: have, yeah. <laughs> um, the Northwest Passage, um, it, it was just as grueling back 100 years ago when explorers went there as it is now. The difference is climate change. Uh, it's a little bit warmer, opened up paths you can actually lay down fiber optic cable under the water but for a very limited portion of the year. And that's where the story starts. So
0: talk about this company a little bit more because they attracted some interesting investors. Uh, and then there was a leader who was making some promises.
6: So the, the co-founder of this company, Elizabeth Pierce, uh, is the CEO of Quintillion, and, and she really drove this mission forward to build out this uh, transarctic arctic uh, internet pipeline. They raised $270 million to bring this dream to life from some, some very high-profile investors, including uh, one of their backers was Len Blotnovik, uh the Ukrainian uh, oligarch, Uh Many would call him, uh, who owns Warner Music Group. Uh, he was one of the big investors, and you might ask, why was he interested in this a- a data pipeline? And that's because shortening this distance between the b- between uh, the continents. Lowers latency and could provide huge upside to to cloud players, to high frequency traders, just shaving off milliseconds in, in internet speeds. Uh, the issue was he was actually sold on this idea by Elizabeth Pierce, the CEO, who had uh, essentially forged contracts for over the course of several years. Um, she, uh, you know, was selling all these uh, sort of major sales contracts to their investors to raise all these funds. But it turns out after our investigation, uh, there, these things didn't really exist. She had fabricated the entire thing, uh, which is one of the things we get deeper into in the story.
5: Which is actually, like, it takes a turn and it starts with the first document that she forged, and by the end of it, how many documents has she forged?
6: It was, uh, be, uh, give or take, uh, let's say at, late, at least eight. Uh, and, and we're talking, I mean, these are these are contracts these worth hundreds small. of millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> these are not tiny contracts. These are well, ones you'd w- want to check out. What was <laughs> she thinking?
0: And did you say contracts more, worth more than a billion dollars? In, in, in together? Aggregate. aggregate. In yeah. aggregate. Yeah. In
6: aggregate. A billion dollar scam. So what was she thinking? I mean, that's the big question. We talked to more than three dozen people for the story who were very close to her, and they described describe her as extremely rigorous, but also extremely secretive. She did not allow any of her co-workers into meetings with investors. Uh, one source had told us that when, she started, when one of their, her employees started to share too much data about accounting with her investors by phone, uh, she kicked him very harshly uh, under the table to stop him from doing so. Uh, she had a private filing cabinet that uh, she scolded one employee from opening at one time. So she, she she was very secretive, but you could also say, so wasn't Steve Jobs, so wasn't any right. Silicon Valley yeah, but entrepreneur. she also
0: brought in people she knew, and I would assume liked to make investments in a company that she knew was built on fraud, right?
6: She, she. I mean, she not only brought in high-profile investors, but also individuals who were her employers, yeah. who were her family's friends. And, and that's where I think that the turn that Joel is talking about, I mean, you, you see how personal this fraud gets when you start to bring in people who are, um, you know, not billionaire investors, but just local Alaskans who thought this uh, had huge upside for the state, invested their family's retirement funds in it, and lost all their money as a result.
1: And so so where does the company stand now? It's got a new leader because this is still a pretty important project for a lot of people.
6: So they, the, the crazy thing is, if you compare this to any fraud, um, I, you know whether that's uh, Theranos or any any other high profile project that sort of fell apart, uh, apart uh, the difference is. There was something behind the curtain here. Uh, Elizabeth Pierce, the CEO of this company, actually, despite all her fraud, ended up building out this fiber optic network in Alaska. So, so that's what makes it really fascinating. We spent a lot of time up in Anchorage, up in the northernmost community in Alaska, which is called Barrow. I can't actually pronounce the how it's said And by uh, we,
5: Austin <laughs> means him.
6: him. It, it's the capital we. Uh, wearing sweaters and snow boots. Several S- Snow layers. boots, and, and this is freezing up there. But at the same time, you go up and you see, wow, these people actually have Internet access. This is pretty phenomenal that uh, despite all this fraud, this thing actually came to life, which is a lot different than a Theranos where, you know, there was actually no blood testing kit uh, or anything like that. And,
5: and the project might actually keep going, right? Like it, there's the effort to try and do Alaska, but it could be it could still be have a larger reach than
6: that right so the the current ceo who took over he's a former army vet um you know he he, he was brought in days after this fraud was uh, uncovered internally and he completed the network with ships in the arctic who are building these things under ice um and i'd say he's a straight shooter they have big potential if they can only build this thing out the problem is it's going to cost 800 million more dollars to do so and um, what happened to elizabeth Elizabeth Pierce, as of last week, was just sentenced to five years in
5: jail. There you go. So, moral of story: don't forge billions. <laughs> in yeah. contracts. don't do that. Don't do that. Not things. not even for Netflix. But yeah. do
1: read Austin Carr's story. It's a really uh, nice narrative and an important one. Austin Carr, tech reporter for Bloomberg. His story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week online and on the Bloomberg terminal.
0: That's what we want to find out from our next guest. Uh, We always learn something when Joe Kalish stops by. He is Chief Global Macro Strategist at Ned Davis Research, based in Venice, Florida, back in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Welcome back. Thanks, Carol. So you sent over a bunch of research, and I've been looking through it. Uh, We talk about the repo mess. You take a look at the labor market. And you also talk about corporate credit risks rising. How, How do you see this environment when you add it all up right now?
3: So, if I look at the sort of the biggest risks, there's no shortage of risks out there, as we know. A lot of those are geopolitical, um, but you know, a lot of these are known, right? The, the trade war—that's what's going on. What's uh, uh, bothering me most, uh, you know, uh, acutely right now, is some of this ramping up of these non-tariff barriers, right? Because this is opens up a whole new front in the trade you know, the trade war and the war with China, basically. That doesn't get fixed, uh, the, even the, if the it, trade it, war gets resolved. It's hard to get that fixed quickly, yeah. right? So this is going to be a long-term issue. It's going to be with us, you know, at least until the election, probably. Yeah. I don't see how China is going to cave in quickly. Um, you know, the other risks we we all know about with, with Brexit and, and, and Hong Kong and all those. But then uh, when I look at what's going on, in terms of profit margins when we eliminate some of those distortions that we had from the tax law we see the profit margins actually peaked in 2014 so we've been Eroding on profit margins. So we use this measure called unit profits and profit margins have been eroding for five years now And we're actually back down to the level so we went from 15% to 11% We're back down to the levels about where we were at the start of the last recession So we could go lower But we're essentially eroding the cushion and the other point that I was making in that piece that you referenced is that the interest coverage ratio Uh, has also been eroding so we were at 5.5 times Mm -hmm. a few years ago and now we're at 4.3 times which is the exact average over the last 50 years. And what we've seen is that when you start dropping below that level, then you run into a greater risk of recession. So again, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a recession tomorrow, but right. it means that the cushion is being eroded such that if we get a downside shock to the economy, there's not much of a cushion left to it's absorb that to shock, that, right. and then it's easier to get into a re- fall into a recession.
1: And so, Joe, one of the pieces of data, certainly that people look at very closely and are, I feel like continuing to try and synthesize is the monthly jobs report. We saw that on Friday. Right. How did that fit into the other elements that you're seeing and that you take into account when you're trying to predict where we go next?
3: Right. So when we look at the job market, um, it, it's very important piece for calling a recession because you can't have a recession without people losing jobs. And we really haven't seen anybody lose their job yet. So there were a few things that sort of bothered me uh, in the employment report that came out on Friday that we were pointing out. First of all, everybody knows that average hourly earnings for all workers slowed from 3.2% to 2.9%. But that wasn't in the bulk of the labor force, which are production and non-supervisory employees, which account for 80% of the labor force. Their average hourly earnings basically stayed at three and a half percent. So the weakness was occurring in what we call supervisor and manager pay. And that just seems a bit Mm. odd that that would be slowing down. So my interpretation is not that these people are getting less compensation, but they're getting it in non-monetary forms. We're gonna pay for your health care. We're gonna give you extra time off. We're gonna give you stock options. So there are other ways of compensating people other than giving them an actual increase to their base, which is what gets calculated in average hourly earnings. So that that was one thing that, that bothered me. Um, and then we, the weakest sector of the economy, manufacturing, hasn't shown any real net job loss. Yeah. Now, we've seen a little bit of erosion in the average work mm-hmm. week and overtime hours, but basically we're back to where we were before the tax cuts hit and, and where we were in 2017. So you know, we really haven't seen a material weakness. And it, so if... If the companies aren't letting go of their labor, we don't see any uptick in unemployment claims, and the unemployment rate fell to a new low, it gives us some breathing room in terms of when that next recession could hit. And, and I think that, that, that's the, some of the uh, points that, that we were raising in that.
0: So conclusion is you don't see a recession anytime soon.
3: We don't see a recession anytime soon, but clearly you know, the risks have risen mm-hmm. over the last year. And, and so, so the probability of recession has increased, but we, we are not calling for recession at this time. We don't feel we have enough evidence to make that call. J- in order to make that call, you need the consumer to cave in. Right. And that happens with the job losses or erosion in wealth.
0: Now, Jay Powell said earlier in his comments, I was just looking yep. for it verbatim, but basically to the point of you know maybe they're seeing some signs of slowness, but there's no reason why – um, things kind of can't keep going along at this rate,
3: right? And and actually, one of the other uh, pieces that I was looking at in Friday's employment report that r- is really kind of unusual here is we've seen very very strong growth in uh, household employment, right? Mm-hmm. So there's two surveys: There's the household survey and the establishment survey, and the household survey has been much stronger. In fact, we had the equivalent of uh, and when you take the household survey and make it into the establishment concept. We had the equivalent of a million jobs created in August and almost another 300,000 last month. And now normally the trends of household employment and establishment employment run together. They are at their widest gap now since July of 2009. And that's very unusual. So we don't really know what the reason is. It could be that. There are uh, the birth death model is not giving us enough jobs okay. and that there are people are finding jobs that are not being counted right. in the establishment.
0: See, we always get a lot. I
3: know. Thank you so, so much.
0: Joe Kalish, chief global macro strategist at Ned Davis Research based in Venice, Florida, but uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. This is why the data points as a mass. You might see one thing, but you got to pick apart. This is really why Jay Powell's job
1: is hard uh, and why they've <laughs> got a lot he does to look on the at. Weekend. he yeah. says he reads these kinds it's of reports. Two and a half weeks are going to be big. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. So we're very fortunate because we have some colleagues here who, have their eye on all the elements of the luxury market chris rouser being chief among them and actually hat tip to him for this next guest brian duffy is the ceo of watches of switzerland he's based in london but here in our bloomberg interactive brokers studio his company recently went public he's going to tell us about that and also what to expect in the luxury market great to have you with us no thanks for having me nice to be here all right, so going public, that's not something that necessarily we're always talking to luxury watchmakers about. So what, uh, what brought you to the public markets?
7: Uh, we were private equity owned, uh, owned by a big U.S. Uh, group, Apollo. So we were going to go somewhere, and, uh, <laughs> and I think uh, going public was a great thing for this business. It uh, gives certainty about ownership, lower leverage, uh, high accountability, high governance. Um, so I think, I think it was a good move to make, and it's, it's gone pretty well.
0: What I love talking about uh, your kind of company is we get a feel of what's going on, certainly in the global economy, and certainly what's going on within the luxury global economy. What are you guys seeing when you look around the world?
7: Uh, You know what? The the luxury watch market's a bit of a one-off, I think, in many ways. Um, It's more supply-constrained than it is Mm -hmm. demand-constrained, and I I don't think people fully realize that. Um, It's uh, pretty much a Swiss monopoly. So it uh, has the peculiarities that come from that. Um, But uh, right now, there's never been such a demand for luxury watches in the world. Europe,
0: Uh, Asia, North America, everywhere.
7: Everywhere, and uh, I think that's what's unusual about it. I think in the past you maybe had you know good demand in the U.S., but maybe Asia's down, whatever. But globally, the the world are, um, are are very interested in having more mechanical precious luxury watches, and uh, there really hasn't been the response from a production standpoint to to meet that demand. So today we have more products on waiting lists than uh, we've ever had at any time in our history.
1: Talk to us about retail, because you're you're uniquely positioned to talk about this in part because part of your background is uh, you worked at a very senior level group president for uh, Polo Ralph Lauren across Europe and the Middle East, so you understand retail pretty intimately. How does that play through in the current... Uh, iteration. Your current iteration w- with this uh, particular market.
7: Uh, I mean, this market again is peculiar in that, well, first of all, not all brands allow their product to be sold online, um. so immediately you don't have that uh, competition. And even those that do, you've got to have bricks and mortar to be an authorised retailer. So it's a protected industry, which which I think is good. It's not really threatened by a uh, pure play and so on. It's also a product where, you know, people are spending a lot of money on a luxury watch for a special occasion in their life. Um, they they really want to take their time and do it. So we, we think we have a formula, formula in retail, customer service, really taking time with customers, giving them a great joy, uh, choice, giving them great uh, expertise from our team. Uh, trying on watches, a um, lot of research is done online, but until you actually... Uh, get there and put it on your wrist you don't know if it's a watch for you so uh, the right kind of retail uh, bricks and mortar environment still really works for this category very well.
0: Brian I'm always curious if there are certain brands that really resonate with certain high-end consumers around the world so like in America what's the watch or watch brands is, is there a couple that are tend to be more dominant than others in terms of sales?
7: Yeah yes I mean the best and the biggest luxury watch brand in the world America included is Rolex. Uh, it's a wonderful product. It's indestructible. Um, it's uh, it's super cool, as you can see from the nice Daytona that I'm wearing now. I got it. It doesn't always look wait, wait. this good. I've got, to, I've
0: got an Apple Watch, and you got a Fitbit, yeah, on, right? Yeah, Fitbit.
7: yeah, yeah. That's okay. I noticed right away. You know, if, um, <laughs> if we I get a g- half
0: to say i have some really good watches at home and i'm feeling very guilty as of late my my teenage daughter all of a sudden is like hey can i have this i'm like no yeah but it's interesting to see i mean that doesn't impact this kind of world or does it
7: uh really not not luxury watches we know it as a matter of fact that it doesn't from our business but we also got leading up to the ipo we got some research done that that, uh, said it too which is exactly your case that People who have luxury watches uh, who also have a smartwatch, yeah. uh, they're very different occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't go out to Fair impress enough. your friends with your smartwatch on, you, uh, <laughs> you put something nice on. There. So it's very mechanical, luxury Swiss watch is a very different world to a smart technology.
1: When you think about sort of the political, geopolitical world we're living in, Think about a place like Hong Kong. Yep. You know, luxury feels like is something that could candidly suffer uh, as those protests go on. Uh, how does that play through in, in your estimation? It,
7: it, it results in it being the most volatile uh, part of the global market. It's the biggest market for uh, Swiss watch exports. It's, uh, it's the biggest in the world. Hong Kong. Hong Kong. No, yeah, yeah. Have you I seen was- an impact? Well, we're not in Hong Kong, we're UK and US, but uh, it's publicised, there's been a very significant uh, impact uh, overall. Um, the empirical data we all look at every month, is the Swiss watch exports, you get it by product type, by a country, and the numbers are down in Hong Kong for wow. very obvious reasons, the Chinese yeah. are not going there, not shopping. Right. So yes, and as a result, it's, a, it's been an excellent market over the years, but then it can really get hit by, you know, this kind of uh, unfortunate activity.
0: So how many watches do you have, Brian Duffy?
7: I have um, around 12, 13 watches. Right. And, it's uh, like a reasonable amount for the yeah. CEO of a watch company. Never had. enough. It's about know. the
0: same amount uh, that in terms of sneakers. Yeah, probably yeah. the same yeah. amount of
7: sneakers. Just, right. You know, while you mentioned sneakers, we're doing a big collaboration with uh, uh, sneakers, with, with the difficult-to-get sneakers, sneakers that people are buying like yeah. 4000 yeah. or $5,000. It's become a luxury item. Yeah, so down in our, our store in Green Street here in New York, we're, we're doing a, an event uh, matching sneakers and the uh, luxury and watches. watches. All right, you know, we'll have to check it out. You must come along. That's I will. very cool.
1: Brian Duffy, CEO, of Watches of Switzerland, based in London, here in New York City with us. <laughs>
7: Is the drive to the close. That punk to music will
6: drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Greg Lucan back with us, founder, chief executive officer of Lucan Investment Analytics, based down in lovely Nash Vegas, Nashville, Tennessee, here with us in New York City today.
0: Do so they we're... actually call it Nash Vegas. Some people do. We do. Do, do yeah. you? We do, yeah. Why?
8: Because it's like a boomtown.
0: Wow. It's a total boom town. Well, what's going
8: sort on in Sort of a econ- party town, too.
0: Well, we, we do love when people come from, you know, not necessarily New York or the West Coast to kind of get a feel of what's going on. What's going on in Nashville in terms of the economy? And what are the things that are on top of mind for everyone, whether it's a business owner, whether it's an investor, homeowner?
8: Well, uh, like a lot of cities, they're growing... Um, you know there's just a lot more people, so uh there's a push to get infrastructure to support that. We've got a lot of people moving in from other states um, because there is no state income tax, and so uh it's a right to work state. And uh, we have an educated workforce. Uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Nashville's called the Athens of the South, right. and um, so uh, there. There's a lot of research there. There's a lot of publishing. Um, it's kind of a tech hub as well. So.
0: So nobody's talking about recession. N-
8: not in Nashville. No, yeah. not at all.
1: Well, and you've been the beneficiary of a lot of sort of in-migration. I mean, from New York, you've had Alliance Alliance Bernstein I believe, Uh, is moving a whole bunch of people down there. You've even had, it feels like, some some folks moving from elsewhere in the south, from Atlanta and Charlotte and elsewhere, um, you know, trying to capture candidly some of the – stuff that's going on there that may have been happening in atlanta and and charlotte a a few years ago the only problem is they're going to turn it into the next atlanta or charlotte
8: well we (laughs) we we hope not the biggest immigration right now is coming in from um uh california and michigan michigan interesting Mm -hmm. why do you think that is uh i i think a lot of it has to do with climate yeah uh and i think a lot of it has to do with uh tax levels Right, yeah, I think right. that's a
0: big deal. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about kind of, you set the economic scene there. Talk to us about the market scene right now, because we've had an interesting day. We were kind of kidding with you that we're kind of fed up <laughs> with Fed a little bit. But it was great to hear from Jay Powell, because I think everyone's trying to figure out, okay, what's next in terms of the Federal Reserve? What kind of visibility, Greg, do you feel like you have when it comes to the investment environment right now?
8: Well, I, I think I think the, the temptation sometimes is uh, to get really frustrated. You know, we've gone sideways for a long time. A lot of investors have looked at their statements and, mm-hmm. and they're saying they're they're not as good now as they were in January of 2018. And and I think it's good to, to step back and realize that um, if we look statistically at the market, to go, going back on the Dow for 120 years, the market spends about 80% of its time declining and recovering from those Declines just kind of go in sideways ways like we have um, in in the last couple of years, uh, and only twenty percent of that time is actually spent creating that new wealth. But that twenty percent of the time is so powerful, you have to make sure you have a strategy to where you are in to capture that. And uh,
0: so, what is that strategy to capture that? Well, at least in this environment right now.
8: I think in this environment, you have to look at where, where's the risk high and where's the risk low. And, you know, you're, you're even seeing uh, developed international markets, particularly Europe today, uh, last night, not moving uh, down like the U.S. Uh, market, emerging markets. Um, they're lost today about half of what the international markets are. Um, broad-based uh, commodities and gold, um, you see people moving there uh, for a safe haven. So really to kind of keep that powder dry or or protect against some of those declines, um, beginning to scale uh, from U.S. equities into some, into some other uh, asset classes that haven't done well for a long time. Hmm.
1: Talk to us about small caps, because I feel like we've been having that conversation uh, sort of repeatedly trying to get our head around, like, is it really that bad uh, out there for small caps? It feels like it might be. It feels like a place
8: maybe not to be playing. Uh, It's not. You know, uh, years ago, um, uh, there was a first lady, Nancy Reagan, who came up with a program um, that was her slogan was just say no. Mm -hmm. That was to drugs. But we believe in just saying no to small caps. Uh, we've been saying that for years. We think there's a. It's time. the
1: first Nancy Reagan reference I think we've had on the show <laughs> like in quite some time. This. I, I well did, done. I
8: had to do a little setup there because. Yeah, uh, good. So just
0: lot, just say no to small caps.
8: Just say no to small caps. Why do
0: you hate them so much?
8: Well. A, I think we're in the wrong part of the economy for small cap stocks. And and if you look even at uh, the equal weighted S&P versus the cap weighted S&P, you've seen a big underperformance of the equal weighted for the last five years. So it's really the capitalization weighted uh, huh. that has uh, that has led the market. Uh, the small cap stocks, especially small cap value, have had much more risk and much less return than the NASDAQ or the S&P or the, even the NASDAQ stack 100
1: hmm. and so what are you bullish on at this point europe you said
8: uh, i i think europe looks really interesting it, it 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 might be a mischaracterization to say i'm i'm bullish on it yeah. i think it looks really interesting you know this month we've got brexit right. scheduled to happen at the end of the month uh you got earnings season that happens uh, here in full swing next week so i i think particularly uh you know um uh the uk uh germany um they look really interesting forming a really nice base close to support um Look interesting there, you know it 's interesting.
0: Right. you sent some notes too over that um, takes a look at you know decline and recover time, so I mean, I think about the technology space where I think you could get a healthy debate on any given day um, what's your take on that because some are saying okay it 's overvalued they 've had their run up. That's not where I want to put new money. Others say, well, these are the growth engines going forward. Just got about 30 seconds, 40 seconds. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Sorry. you. Um,
8: they are the growth engines, and and you have to go where the growth is. I mean, so,
0: so you would commit new money there.
8: We do. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. Greg Lucan, Thanks
0: founder
1: so and chief executive <laughs> officer of Lucan Investment Analytics. Carol he had a gave few him, more seconds. Yeah, he had a few more seconds. Wow. Carol was very generous and gave him 30 for one. For one answer. It's a
0: lot of time. You love running down time. the clock. It's a uh, lot of time you're... broadcast time, and he did just fine.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.